to the Star Talk All Stars live at Caveat, New York City. Who's excited to be here? Okay, great. I am so excited for this show. Okay, I'm Natalia Reagan, by the way, I'm your host. I have an amazing co host tonight. He's hilarious. Harrison Greenbaum, will you please join me on stage? Yes. Now, you may have seen Harrison on Last Comic Standing. You might have seen him on America's Got Talent, and boy, does he have talent. Thank you. I don't have a fancy spacesuit. I just have my space socks. What do you mean a fancy spacesuit? This is just Monday. <laughs> just, just, this is just Monday afternoon. Now, Harrison, wouldn't you say the world is kind of going through a, a rough patch, yeah, if you will? A hellish garbage fire. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's going to hell in a handmaid's basket. Yeah. Handmaid's tail basket. Yeah. What are some reasons why you want to leave Earth? Well, I don't want to leave Earth until I've seen the part two of Infinity War. But after that, oh, no, this is good then point. I'm out of here. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, between yeah, the dumpster fire, climate change, I feel like New York's going to be underwater in like a few decades. But this is exactly why we're here tonight. We want to understand and we want to look at all the options that we have outside of Earth, right? Uh, we want to see uh, if we can actually do interstellar space travel. So I'm going to have uh, a bunch of amazing guests coming out and talking to you about the possibility of going elsewhere. Where would we go? Uh, the actual journey. Can we survive deep space? Uh, it's a long time if we're going to go to another solar system. And uh, also, once we get there, how are we going to do? So I want to I want everyone to welcome our first guest, uh, Jana Gersovich. She is an astronomer and a data scientist, and she is the author. Come on out, Jana. She is the author. Big round of applause for Jana. She's the author of a fantastic book, A Vacation Guide to the Solar System. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, Jana, uh, what is A Vacation Guide to the Solar System? Yeah, so um, back in 2013, I started out planning people's space vacations. So basically, I was procrastinating on finishing my thesis, and somebody called me up and said, I need an astronomer to help me plan people's space vacations. So I said yes, <laughs> and I ended up um, doing this along with uh, Olivia Kosky, who is my co-author. Um, and so we planned many people's space vacations, and then after doing this for years, we decided why not put it into a book, and that's what we did. Okay, so in, in this book, you talk talk about, you know, what makes a planet habitable. So tell us what exactly makes uh, the best ideal planet to go to next. Plan planet B, for example. <laughs> well, I definitely wouldn't recommend going towards any of the planets that we've discovered outside the solar system, um, because we actually don't know that much about what the surface looks like. Um, so you'll see these lovely artists' renditions when you're looking um, when, during the news reports of these. Um, but the fact is, we know very little about these. Um, so we just have these tantalizing little clues. And so when we're thinking about whether a planet might be habitable or not, oftentimes what we're looking at is the temperature of the surface. And uh, that has to do with how far away it is from the star that it's orbiting. And so there are certain distances for certain types of stars at which the temperature it would be would allow liquid water to uh, exist on the surface. But we don't necessarily know whether there is water there or not because we don't have enough information. Basically, all we know generally is um, the mass of the planet or how far away it is. Um, so there's a lot of factors that go into whether a planet would be survivable for humans. Um, and there's a lot that we don't know. So what would make a, a planet survival? Was it, was it water? I know that obviously the atmosphere, like you said, temperature is incredibly important. I wouldn't want to get on, you know, say, well, we're going to go into it, but Venus would not necessarily <laughs> be a great place to land. So no, tell me so what, what makes, you know, a, a, 
yeah. viable life. Right. Possible. So that you'd want a temperature um, that is similar to Earth. Uh, obviously, you have to have a pressure um, that's compatible with humans. <laughs> um, so that's why we have. Can uh, I get cable and anything? <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, and uh, priorities. Yep. And in order to have pressure, you need to have an atmosphere. And this is a little bit tricky because this is the great unknown of a lot of exoplanets is what's going to affect whether they have an atmosphere or not. Um, so, for instance, a lot of the exoplanets that we find are really close to their star. And stars have a lot of activity. They're basically spewing stuff out. Um, they have solar winds. And this can rip off the atmosphere of a planet. Oh, um, that sounds unsavory. Exactly. And that, I like my atmosphere. <laughs> we should talk to the owner of Caveat because it has a great atmosphere. Come to yeah. Caveat, yeah. New York City, open every night. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of activity. Woo. <laughs> so yeah, and uh, things like, you know, so atmosphere, what about, uh, mm -hmm. I know that you want like a, a magnetosphere, you want... Yeah, yeah, so, um, so it's thought that if a planet has um, a magnetic field, so Earth is protected by this nice magnetic field, which is kind of diverting the, this wind or the activity from the sun. And so um, it's thought that having a magnetic field can protect a planet from the effects of solar wind or flares that are coming off the star that it orbits. Solar flares are bad, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we don't want those. Okay, co copy that. So it's kind of a Goldilocks zone. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I want to go through um, some potential new homes. First up, Jana, let's talk about uh, how is the moon as an option? Yeah, so We've the been moon, there. I think, would be a fantastic place to visit because um He's just raking get, up some dirt <laughs> yep it's got a lot of dust on it um but what you'd see in the sky if you visited the moon is you'd see the earth in the sky and it would be an incredible experience because you'd see it go through the different phases so you'd see a crescent earth you'd see a full earth and it would be an amazing opportunity to kind of take a picture of a selfie that included everywhere you've ever been. That would be the most been. obnoxious Instagram oh spot. There's a bunch of 20-year-old millennials going to the moon so they can take a selfie with Earth. But think about, think about how many Yikes. likes it would get, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> hashtag blessed. Hashtag Earth. Hashtag I hope you suffocate. <laughs> And if it's that dusty, can we send a bunch of like Italian grandmothers to wrap the moon in plastic? That's good. That's a good idea. No, no, no. Nobody else had a grandmother to wrap the couch in plastic. Okay. <laughs> Why even buy a couch? Anyway. So yeah, so you could uh, you could imagine if you know on a moon hotel if you uh, if you asked for an Earth view room you'd actually have the Earth staying in the same place in the sky. So the same side of the moon is always facing the Earth. Um, and so it, that means that the Earth is not going to move significantly through the sky. That's so you boring. could just kind of have it in your in your window. So I would get hired time. to do the Mars Comedy Club, and my room would not be facing Earth. <laughs> you just have like, black, sorry, you're the talent. You got to face just a black sky. <laughs> That's only one room, though. Yeah. This is okay. We're going to move on to the next planet that I'm curious about, mm -hmm. which we've heard a lot recently with the Martian, Mars. Let's yes. talk about Mars. So Mars is great um, because you have some lovely landscapes to look at there. Um, so for example, there's a canyon that's about four times as deep as the Grand Canyon. It's called Valles Marineris. Um, so it, it also has the uh, the largest volcano in the solar system, which is Olympus Mons. Show off. So it's got, it's got <laughs> these beautiful landscapes to visit. Um, and it also has uh, two moons, um, 
What I think would be fun is the smaller moon is actually small enough that you could, th it's, it, the gravity is low enough that you could throw a ball into orbit around it, which would be oh, really that's, fun. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I read an article about, because they're trying to do like a one-way trip to Mars and there are people who are signed up. <laughs> and one of them was like a 23-year-old girl who was quoted in the New Yorker as saying, I am so excited and my boyfriend is so supportive. <laughs> I was like, honey, he's breaking up with yeah, you. That's, that's uh, like he's counting down to the cleanest breakup in human history. <laughs> he's just on the launch pad, like, I love you. Ten, <laughs> nine. I'm dating FYI, your sister. I don't do long distance. Uh, <laughs> so, what would you say for Mars? How does that stack up as a place to go? Well, it's it's got more gravity. It's got at least got a little bit of an atmosphere, although definitely not enough for you to breathe. You're going to need to wear a pressure suit. So again, uh, and the temperature isn't right. So again, it's going to be a little difficult to survive, but at least you'll die with a lovely view. Oh, okay. Well, this is, this is a silver lining. Mm -hmm. I like it. So uh, next up, I want to talk about Enceladus, mm. which is, uh, of course, one of uh, Saturn's moons. Yeah, so this is um, an incredible moon because it's spewing out of these huge geysers. So it kind of has this these big cracks in it. It looks like a giant like tiger just... <laughs> The giant tiger just took a swipe at it. And out of the cracks are uh, water that's spewing out. And so underneath the ice, there is a, a water ocean under there. Um, and it's just this beautiful um, uh, ice world of Saturn. It's actually creating one of the rings of Saturn. Um, and the rest of that uh, might fall down as snow onto Enceladus's surface. And are they going back to discover to see if they have any sort of life or microbial life? In yeah, so we, we don't know what's in there. Um, we've never looked down there. Um, mm. And it's it's one of the places that's thought to be, um, uh, along with Europa, one of the most likely um, environments for life as we know it to survive in our solar system. Okay, so how would we die there? <laughs> well, <laughs> again, it has very it's little uplifting show. <laughs> very little atmosphere to speak of. It's in the outer solar system, so it's very, very cold. You're going to need to be um, <laughs> well, uh, well insulated there in your spacesuit. I'm um, not going to hack it. This, yeah, okay. good to know. <laughs> well, speaking of Europa, which is, I think, a fascinating option, uh, tell us about Europa. Mm -hmm. So, um, like Enceladus, it kind of has an icy crust. And underneath that, it has lots and lots of um, water. It's basically got two times the volume of Earth's, all of Earth's oceans combined, just in this little moon that's orbiting uh, around Jupiter. Um, so it's kind of an incredible place. Um, again, we have no idea what's down there. Um, we should send somebody to do some kind of ice fishing there. But um, <laughs> this could be interesting. It, yeah, it's, With it's my luck, it's going to be like regular Europe, that you travel all the way to this moon, and then the waiters are rude. <laughs> Yeah, but um, but the way you die on Europa... <laughs> Thank you for cutting right to the chase. You, you know me well. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so Jupiter is kind of... Um, it's got a really, really strong magnetic field, and it's trapping a lot of particles um, that are contributing to high radiation in its vicinity. And so humans wouldn't really be able to survive very long uh, near to Jupiter. The good thing about Europa is uh, water is somewhat protective. So if you were to go into the ocean underneath, um, you might survive a little bit longer. But again, very cold, <laughs> no atmosphere to breathe, all, all of that. God, we got, we got lucky, I guess. Okay, next up, we've got Venus. Mm. Yeah, so... Is that, why, is that why women are from Venus? Is it because we're really hot? Is that what's going on here? Oh, what's happening? Is that why women are from Venus? I don't know. Yeah, hot I twin. the, the, uh, the name, but... Um, no. 
but yeah, the surface of Venus is really, it's quite hellish. Um, it, it's hot enough to melt tin. Um, it's, you know, really, really highly pressurized. It is not a place, I, I think, you know, you would, you would die even faster there because you, even though you have an atmosphere, um, you'd be crushed, you'd, your suit would melt. It would be very unpleasant, I think, to die. I'd rather just run out of air and not really realize what was happening to me. But there's an upside to Venus. Oh, go on. Um, up in the clouds of Venus, it's uh, it's kind of unusual because the temperature is just a little bit hotter than Earth's temperatures. Um, the pressure is very similar, uh, and uh, Earth air can actually float in the atmosphere of Venus. So oh. you could have like a giant floating city up in the clouds of Venus, um, and uh, the only you know, drawback would be there are these sulfuric acid mists that are corrosive and we don't really know how to deal with those yet. Oh, so. God. Okay. <laughs> that makes those shaving commercials very different right? to me now. It's like, I'm your Venus, I'm your fire. Like, literally fire. It's a fire planet. We should send Space Force as long as Donald Trump leads it in person. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Send him straight to Venus. Astronomers, get out there. Tell His hair would blend in with the planet. It'd be great. His skin, too. We're going now. We're going deep. We're going outside of our solar system. Tell us a little bit about Proxima b. What is it? Where is it? Yeah, so um, it's it, the nearest solar system to Earth, um, to the sun, is uh, the Proxima system. And it's a planet that is orbiting one of the three stars in this system. And the star is much dimmer than the sun is. Um, it's a red dwarf star. But this planet is kind of amazing that there's this planet that's uh, circling one of these nearest stars to us because it's similar in mass to Earth. Um, so you might think, oh, is it, is it very similar in other ways to Earth? Um, and unfortunately, it's very, very close to its star. Um, and so it's about uh, 1/20th the distance that Earth is from the sun. And, um, and so we think it's a little bit too close to the star to retain an atmosphere because its star is still, even though it's less massive than the sun, it's still spewing off this, this wind that we think will rip off its atmosphere if it Ooh, has okay. one. Um, but at least, you know, maybe the gravity would be similar, <laughs> somewhat similar to Earth's gravity as you were dying The whole there. point is the anti-gravity part. Like, I'm not going to travel all that way and not be able to jump real high. Yeah, like yeah, that's I'm going to weigh whole, five pounds. I want to go to a planet where Jews can play basketball. That's oh. what I want. <laughs> this is not it. <laughs> so that's it for part one. Next, I'm going to be joined with Ronke Olabisi, a, a biomedical engineer who's worked with astronaut May Jemison on the medical challenges of going interstellar. And now joining us, we have biomedical engineer Ronke Olabisi, assistant professor at Rutgers University, where she's head of her own biomedical engineering lab. She works with former astronaut Mae Jemison on her 100-year Starship project to devise a plan to send humans to another star. Thank you for being here. You are working with Mae Jemison right now, uh, to, who is one of our all-star uh, Star Talk, well, Star Talk family members. Uh, we love her at Star Talk, but we, you're working on the 100... Uh, uh, Starship um, project, and I want to hear a little bit about that and your actual work on um, getting the biomedical research uh, involved. 
Okay, so the 100-year starship is part thought experiment, um, part an initiative to generate interest in the public. So if I, if I look at the moon landings as an analogy, when Kennedy gave his famous speech, we choose to go to the moon, right? <laughs> That was in 1962, and by 1969, we had made it to the moon. And if you look at all of the inventions that came about because of that, we have satellite television, we have GPS, we have all your cell phones are because we chose to go to the moon. We have water filters. Like, they needed to, to have satellite communication so they could talk to the astronauts. So Britta was... Britta, they needed Britta to Britta was born. <laughs> exactly. They needed to recycle water. 6,500 inventions came just from going to the moon. And that was over a seven to eight year period. Now imagine how our world would have been transformed if in 1869, 100 years prior, we said, let's go to the moon. Like at that time, they would have thought that was impossible too. They'd be training horses to run right. real exactly. fast. Right? <laughs> if only we could reach escape velocity. Add another two horses. <laughs> they go galloping into the sky. <laughs> So they would have come It was a horse massacre. With thousands of horses <laughs> erupted into flames. A mere 40 feet. Sorry. I'm just thinking of like a steampunk it version of a rocket ship. Crazy. Many of the inventions would have been crazy, but it would have transformed our lives, right? So if you think of a lot of people say, well, we can't go to another star. It's impossible. But that's not the important part. If we decide that we're going to go, what what do we need to get there? Hibernation would help. How would that help on Earth? Well, if you're critically injured or you need a, a transplant, if you can put them in hibernation, that would save lives. It works for bears. It works for me. Right. <laughs> I feel or, like the Netflix binge already is hibernation because right? I have started full shows <laughs> and then emerged from my apartment four days later. <laughs> or, or what else do we need? We need to get there faster. So that would stimulate energy, power, that would help everything on Earth. So a 100-year starship is, is really about the journey. If we make it there, that's a bonus. But that's not the important <laughs> Not to the people on board. They're like, get us yeah, there like, oh, right man. now. No, I, I think that's an interesting just idea, too, that I, when you were born into something like that, that you might just live your whole life on a, on a ship. Well, I don't see it as a generational ship. I see, for instance... There are reputable scientists that are actually working on warp technology. In 2018, Paris and Finley described a space warp bubble using a variable electromagnetic device. Drive was what they called it. And so it's science fiction now, but if they're successful one day, then maybe it doesn't take 70,000 years. Maybe it takes, I don't know. Too. Yeah. Oh goodness, that'd be great. Yeah. So I'm just gonna because we I laughed I, when they had C3PO, but now we all have Alexa listening to everything right? we do. <laughs> this is true. I yell at that thing. I live alone, but I'm pretty sure my neighbors think I'm just an abusive boyfriend. Because <laughs> that's all they hear. Alexa, turn on the lights. <laughs> the light. <laughs> Playing Billy Joel. I will end you. <laughs> Uh, I want to give a little uh, facts about Proxima B because uh, if I don't read it, I will definitely mess it up. But it's our closest closest exoplanet at 4.3 light years uh, from Alpha Centauri equals uh, nearly 53 million uh, round trips from Earth to Moon. It's a lot of round trips. Uh, Voyager 1, of course, is the, fa uh, the farthest man-made object that has ever been sent from Earth. So 
you know, that, that, that says something. Imagine this. Earth is Santa Clara, California, lovely area of the world. And New York City is Alpha Centauri. On this scale, if Voyager were traveling at a steady clip of 35,700 miles per hour since its launch in 1977, it would have only traveled one mile. It'd still be in lovely Santa Clara, California. So that means it would take, like we just said, 70,000 years to get to Alpha Centauri with our current technology. But what you're saying is with the our... People who get bounce, the middle seats are going to be pissed. <laughs> 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 but what you're saying is that if we do develop technology at the rate we have in the past 100 years, we could potentially get there in two? I- Two years? It's possible. I mean, I it's well, technically right now it's not possible. But in eighteen sixty nine it wasn't possible to go to the moon either. Yeah. So just because it's not possible right now doesn't mean that it will never be possible. It could be that uh, we go to the moon or not to the moon to Alpha Centauri remotely. There are people developing nano satellites and then they can propel them with lasers and they reach uh, fractions of the speed of light and so maybe we start to get information 40 years from now like maybe we're traveling remotely maybe we actually send a person there but whether or not it's possible is not a reason to not try I like your I like your chutzpah. For this portion, we really want to talk about the things that happen that could happen to our body during a journey like this. Like, for instance, if we're sending a, a group of people in you know into space to to do interstellar, hopefully reach Alpha Centauri, they're going to be theoretically on that ship for a very long time. What about having babies? Would it would you see uh, procreation on a spaceship? And with, if so, were there any sort of uh, uh, perils with that, and especially with radiation that you have in space, or even like freezing embryos, things like that, or these anything that you deal with or think about. So freezing embryos, they did that on the movie Interstellar, and that's actually a pet peeve of mine because <laughs> tell me why. <laughs> number one, Interstellar, I mean, between two stars, they didn't go to another star; they went to a black hole. That's not Interstellar. Wrong title. Mm. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> they messed up. Number two. A black hole was at one point a star, though, no? And then it collapsed on itself? Yeah, but it's not a star anymore. Fair. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Tell that to half of Hollywood. <laughs> they had, what, 5,000, 10,000 embryos frozen aboard? And I don't know if anybody else noticed, but they had four or five crew. Only one of them was a woman. They didn't mention anything about artificial well, universes. Then. They didn't mention. So was she going to have all five thousand of those babies? <laughs> nope. Like, <laughs> so that's like Smurf. You know, there's only one right. Smurf, Smurfette, and it's all Smurfette. Like, I don't that's know. so. Tr- oh my god, you just blew my mind. I know. Don't think about <laughs> it. I like how you just don't told me an incredible amount of scientific facts, but then you mentioned the Smurfs having one girl. I was like mind blown. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody get a mop. <laughs> right, and so it's. And then, like, on Earth, in vitro fertilization... And how was that girl Smurf there? <laughs> they made her. Because there's a, oh, there are two generations minimum of Smurfs, right? And there's Papa Smurf. There's Papa. He's older with a beard. But they And then there's a girl. Her. They made her. She wasn't part of the mix until they were like, we need a girl. Oh, boy. We need to do a Smurf <laughs> right? episode, and we're going to bring you back on for that. Okay. <laughs> I can go on and on and on. I want you here for that. <laughs> but no, go on. This is, this is, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, even on Earth, in vitro fertilization, I mean, it's helped many infertile couples, but any of them will tell you it's not a cure-all. It's not 100%. And so you're taking these 5,000, like, sometimes success rates are only in the 30%. And 
they don't, and that's under earth conditions where everything is good and perfect. Yeah. You know? And so, I mean, they didn't even, they didn't have a doctor up there to be in certain this, this was again, back to interstellar. It's like, what were they going to do? You know? Yeah. So it's not. So babies in space. I just can't see mom. babies in space. I even mean, they, space ejaculation has got to be weird. Cause it's, there's no <laughs> gravity. Is there enough force to make a baby in space? So they've done a lot of different experiments with birth and, and animals. <laughs> Did they space. make astronauts masturbate in space? No, no, no. They animals, animals, rats. Oh, so oh, did rats have ba- rats rat babies? Had some babies in space? Go again. And depending, sometimes space the rats babies. let them fly, mm-hmm. float away, and they didn't take care of, of the pups. Oh. Sometimes, oh, no. um, apparently, if they were to give birth, or if they went up in space and then came back and gave birth. Their labor was a gazillion times worse, and so these rats were like in labor, and they're like ah, as opposed. And so, oh, so your so your space baby was fine, but then the, the baby on Earth is the one that That's, it didn't seem to affect the development. It just affected the muscles and the care of the mothers and all of those kinds of things. But they've never been able to successfully do the whole from fertilization to birth because. The rats weren't really feeling romantic when they were in space, oh. let's say, number one. Well, and shoot. They were just trying to grab hold. The only... Uh, <laughs> right, because they're floating around and their, yes. their mouse brain doesn't understand what's going on. Yes. It's like when you film like a they movie with an animal, jazz. they don't know they're on a set. The, right. the only they think animals- they're in World War II. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> to a horse, World War II is the same as a movie about World War II. <laughs> The tr- tree frogs were the only animals who were like, okay, this is cool. This is free fall. And they'd always spread out. And they were oh. like, I know what to do. But they were the only ones who who felt comfortable with the situation. Leave it to amphibians, man. I'm, I'm a total right? amphibian file. Uh, I want to talk to you about food on this trip. What I mean, is there any sort of nutritional guidelines or things that we would need to think about that we don't want to slack off on getting, you know, we got scurvy during the, you know, pirate exploration days. Would we get scurvy in space? Well, in 2016, NASA actually put out a call for uh, research proposals where you would take bacteria and grow food and clothing and supplies and fuel even. And so if that were to be successful, again, that would be transformative on Earth. Like, imagine not having to rely on fossil fuels. You just go get a vat of bacteria and fuel up. Or you don't have to ever do laundry again. You just throw out your old outfit and 3D print a new cute outfit out of bacterial cellulose. So, do they make space costumes? I'm sure I'm in. you could get it. I'm in. Okay. So, and then as far as like real challenges that we're actually you guys have, are doing research on in, in terms of cosmic rays uh, that could be cancerous, is there anything that you know protection that's being you know? Um, worked on right now to, to protect against things like that for long-term, you know, uh, radiation. So that's hard because when you're dealing with one type of radiation, you can, you can say, okay, lead works great for x-rays, but people think, okay, just go with the whole spaceship with lead, but that doesn't work for cosmic rays because for instance, beta radiation, you have to use acrylic to block it. You try to use lead to block it, and it generates the secondary radiation, which is more lethal than the beta radiation. Oh, geez. So you can't use lead for everything, but what works best is just having a lot of mass. 
So if you had a foot of water surrounding the spaceship, that would be great. It would absorb the radiation and everything, but it's very heavy. And the heavier you get, the more it costs and the more prohibitive it is. But, you know, I have read things where they suggest that, you know, you use the natural resources on hand, such as feces, and spread it all around the ship. Now, oh, my God. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> that was one that I heard. I don't think uh, necessarily people would want to. I'm into that. it. That's a shitty I'm idea. Really into it. <laughs> hey, but uh-huh. <laughs> That's what I'm here for, folks. Wow. Right. Wow. You just, my mind is blown. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's a great way to, but that's a great way to recycle. And I mean, a, a, we're going to, you're going to, we're so full you're of putting shit. it in we're the wall. Keep... You're not just spreading it on the wall. No, like it's a well, paint. I don't see them spreading it on the wall like a paint. I see <laughs> okay. maybe, uh, you know, I re- really don't want to go to your house. <laughs> that they put it in on the outside okay. of the ship. Maybe. I don't know. That's pretty good. There's a great transcript. I think it's a fruit, which Apollo mission, but a poop escaped and they're like talking to ground <laughs> control and he's like, Oh, uh, Houston, there is a floating and it's clearly like a poop and it's like it had escaped and they have to like capture it and we have all the transcripts. That's great. Yeah. It has uh, literally it hit the fan. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. We switched jobs. <laughs> and lastly, weightlessness. Uh, is there going to be any problems with that in long term? Are you- so it begins to affect you the minute you get up into space. It affects every single organ system. So weightlessness, when you first go up there, you get this, what's called a fluid shift. And gravity is constantly pulling on everything in you, including your fluids. And so when you get this headward fluid shift, you get the worst headache of your life, and that lasts for about five days. Um, Your body thinks that you have too much liquid, and so it causes you to pee constantly until your blood volume is reduced to where it thinks it's now back to normal. And this is great for when you're in space, but once you come back to Earth, you develop what's called orthostatic intolerance, which just means you pass out when you stand up. So whenever you see astronauts coming back from the ISS, none of them are standing up. They're being carried, and that's why. Um, So your bone is this wonderful optimization tissue, and it says, I'm here to support you in the forces of gravity. And when it gets into space, it's like, dude, I am in such excess, I need to reduce myself. And so it starts to break itself down. And if you consider postmenopausal women lose bone at a rate of about 2 to 4% per year, Mm. astronauts in space, that's per month. So a year on the ISS, you can come back and have osteoporosis. And so all this degrading of your bone releases a lot of calcium into your blood, and your kidneys have to filter that, and so you're more likely to get kidney stones. And your (laughs) your muscles are atrophying, and that's why they do all of these exercises to try to prevent that. Okay. And so everything is affected, every single organ system, and that having been said, I'd go in a heartbeat. I love that. That's that's, that's the spirit right there. That's the spirit. This is Star Talk uh, presents Science All-Stars live from Caveat, New York City. I'm your host, Natalia Reagan. Still with us is Harrison Greenbaum. He has not uh, bailed yet. No, of course no, not. He's he's uh, he's killing it. I'm here tonight. for seventy thousand years. Yes, and we are talking about the challenges of taking humans interstellar. 
So many challenges, right? Okay. And so joining us next, we have two special guests. We have psychologist Jay Van Bavel. Welcome, Jay. Jay is an associate professor of psychology at NYU. Anybody love NYU out there? Yeah. Woo! He has his own social perception and evaluation lab. That's right. How are we doing? We're doing good. So We're doing. Far. You're validating, so so evaluating good. us. Okay, yeah. good. I feel validated. Uh, he he. His research explores how collective concerns, group identities, moral values, and political beliefs shape the mind and brain. Oh, I think you're going to have some good stuff to say about. That's what we're talking about. And next up, we have a writer, a high seas crew member, Kate Green. Come on out, Kate. Woo! I was yeah. really excited to hear she could come. So Kate is a poet, an essayist, a former laser physicist. Do you just work with cats? No. Darn. Uh, she is a crew writer and the second in command on a four-month simulated Mars mission for the NASA-funded High Seas Project. Hi, both of you. Woo. Well, did you do it? Did you do it already, or is it about to happen? Yeah, I did it in 2013. Oh, that's okay, amazing. So let's jump right into that because we want to know all about that. Tell us about High Seas. What, what was the purpose of it? What was it like? So High Seas is a NASA-funded project to simulate a Mars mission. It's based in Hawaii on Mauna Loa, 8,000 feet. It's very red, very rocky up there, and it looks a lot like Mars. And the whole point is to simulate the isolation and to study the stress that the isolation puts on crew members. So you have a crew of six uh, living together for four months to a year. And um, this crew is constantly filling out surveys about how they feel, and they're, they're doing tests and studies on each other and themselves. And um, we, ha- we had to deal with um, the tests that came from scientists outside the project as well, just curious about you know, our diary entries or you know, how often we talk to a crew member. So that's what, that's what high seas is in a nutshell. But what we were doing was um, studying a food system, like new food systems. Because on Mars, you have gravity, so you could potentially cook. And there's a problem that astronauts encounter. And we heard about this in the last segment. Uh, there's a fluid shift in your body. And so your, your nose gets kind of stuffed up. And it, scientists think that maybe this is why astronauts eat fewer calories the longer they stay in space. And that's no good because that's bad for your health. So the idea is, well, maybe if you had better food options, you would want to eat more and stay healthier. So we tested a lot of food um, food concepts. So we were kind of, we, we were on the Mars test kitchen. What did you guys eat? All sorts of things. Uh, one of my favorites was beef tagine, mm-hmm. but also spam masubi because we were, fancy. yeah, we were in Hawaii. But um, half the time we ate um, backpacking food because it's basically as close as you can get to astronaut food. So um, it wasn't always great. Just a quick question because I, I read one of your articles about uh, how women might be best to send to, to, for an interstellar mission before we send men up there. And I would like uh-huh. to hear a little bit about that because I thought that was pretty great. Yeah, that was, that was a fun article to write and read the comments on. Um, <laughs> Make Mars great again. <laughs> um, so the the thinking was well, okay. On on our mission, I was in charge of uh, collecting uh, calorie data for the crew, and I couldn't see who was expending how many calories, but I could see everyone's um, gender. So uh, I saw there are three women and three men on the the. Um, on the mission, and the women were, I mean, we were not 
expending more than 1500 calories a day with our activity and you know everything else and um, the way that the the software calculates expenditure but the men were like topping out at like 3800 calories a day it was crazy so oh, what wow. this means is like effectively women require half the food so that's half the mass of food um, on a Mars mission, this is food for like basically three years. That's a huge weight savings. So if you just like didn't bring men, you could really <laughs> save a I lot mean, of sorry, weight guys. in your cargo and it would be a cheaper flight or you could replace the cargo with something else like more experiments to learn more things about Mars. I mean, just food for thought. Literal. Actually, half for food for thought. Yeah, half. Yeah, they can. <laughs> Uh, so actually, we, Star Talk has recently partnered with a new YouTube uh, show called uh, Origin. It's an original series, and we're actually going to watch the trailer. But it's about a, a crew that wants to colonize a new world that's five light years away, called Thea. Uh, uh, Proxima B is only four point two light years away, so it's very similar. So we're going to play the trailer real quick, and we want to hear your thoughts. Very dramatic. <laughs> okay, so I. Uh, you saw the trailer. That's kind of a band of misfits that's leaving Earth to find a, uh, a, a new Earth. What do, you, what do you think about that? Well, um, one thing that's pretty interesting is, um, I don't know if you guys know about the history of, of this uh, theater, but uh, it used to be the home to the Living Theater, which is kind of a band of misfits. So it's the oldest experimental theater group um, in the world, I think. Um, uh, established in 1947 and just doing all sorts of experimental things, um, social justice, social like activism stuff, but just really pushing the boundary of what we think um, is okay in society. And so I think that um, misfits, however they're kind of categorized or qualified, are always kind of pushing us forward. So I think it sounds like a good plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm into it. <laughs> what makes a good space Cowboy, space pilgrim. Mm. What characteristics? Yeah, I mean, basically, this is this is kind of an odd thing to say, but you're kind of married to five people. On the, you're you're committed to each other. You're committing to, to making a thing work over a number of years, and so you have to get along. And so, whatever goes into like making a good marriage uh, makes a good crew, and that's like give and take, and empathy, and checking in, and sharing uh, the remote control, and, and not eating all the Nutella egregiously. No wonder tree frogs are the only people who can help. <laughs> yeah. So, and an ability to be easily entertained because you might not have you know I mean you can't just pop outside and ride your bike to a beer garden you know you can't do fun stuff you have to uh, you're you're you see the same people every day Um, you You still stay in touch Uh, it's been five years yeah yeah I still talk to I still talk to them you know you were second in command in this mission Um, Mm -hmm. did you have a lot of trust in your other you know colleagues as part of this mission, I mean, did you, I know that you might not have gotten along with all of them, but did you trust in their capabilities? Yeah. I mean, we had to. We were the first crew, so we were kind of kicking the tires, and there was a lot of pressure to make sure that this thing worked out because it, it was a big project, and it was uh, something that hadn't been done before. So it was really exciting for all of us to be a part of it. We felt like, you know, a, a bit of a duty to um, do it right. Now, Jake, tell us what all this means. <laughs> Please go. I, this is this, what's your thoughts on 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 the high seas project from a, a psychological perspective? Um, yeah, so I guess there's a lot of elements. One element, as you said, is the isolation from the outer community, and that obviously puts a lot of pressure on people. Um, if you had to go it alone, I think that would be enormously stressful. 
So when you look at prisoners and how they're punished in prisons, the most severe punishment you can have is getting put in the hole um, in complete isolation. And uh, there's psychological studies on this where just being told no one wants to work with you or being told you have to do things alone, your IQ plummets like 15 points in about wow. five minutes. Yeah. Wow. So, so there's lots of elements to it. I guess the other element you mentioned is having a team that works together. So mm -hmm. I, that's something that, that I study in my lab. And um, having a diverse team is really important, right? Mm -hmm. So you said it'd be great to have scientists, engineers, artists, um, maybe a psychologist would be useful for a mission like that. <laughs> maybe. Um, and so when you have diverse teams, um, what a natural consequence is that there's friction. But diverse teams do better at solving problems than homogenous teams. But one of the reasons is because they're fighting over which ideas are best and they're having to deal with people who are different than them and have different perspectives and assumptions. So um, making sure that people have the skill to do that is, is really key. And I'll say one thing you mentioned that the research bears out is perspective-taking skills. Mm -hmm. So teams that outperform other teams are ones that have people who are really good at perspective-taking. And you mentioned women eat less food. They're also higher in perspective-taking. So hmm. there's another... <laughs> I wonder why that is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's another, another check there. So those are a couple things that came to my mind. Yeah, no, these are all excellent, excellent <laughs> points. Um, so, so I'm going to say something pretty, uh, pretty obvious. S space is dark and lonely. <laughs> So is my apartment. <laughs> no wonder you're yelling at Alexa all the time. She won't turn on the lights. Does she even do that? Um, so I'm very used to being alone in a tiny compartment, so it's all good. Maybe you should do high seas. I think you're yeah. a great... Were you upset that the acronym reference seas and you were nowhere near the ocean? Because you had okay. no access to the water. I really do. I have to say something. Um, <laughs> on a clear day, you could see Maui from the window. Oh. But a it was strange because it looked like it was just uh, a strange cloud floating in the sky, you know, perspective. The, uh, so you could, you could see the water, um, but you couldn't really tell it was water because it blended in with the sky. It's strange, but wonderful. It was really great. It was kind of necessary because, yeah, yeah, we were surrounded immediately with a bunch of rocks and dreaming of beaches. Yeah, a view, I think, also helps just feeling mm -hmm. sort of perspective. Um, but it, it, space is dark and lonely. How are we, as you know, potential interstellar space travelers, going to keep from being bored? Is there, you know, sort of ways of hobbies that you can do in space or in a smaller space that you would suggest? I wrote down as a joke: fidget spinners, <laughs> Twister, and words with friends. Um, but are there anything psychologically that you can help to get out of your head or, or not feeling so dark and lonely? Yeah, um, I was going to say social media because everybody does that on their phone all day long anyways, but the research shows that makes you feel dark and lonely anyway. So. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's okay. Uh, that's not a solution. Twitter, you're all alone in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is that, did you, did, was there anything that you did? Uh, I know you're a writer. Did you write more? Did you, were you, did you have access to writing? And reading? Yeah, I, I definitely wrote a lot, and I read a lot. Um, yeah, NASA inadvertently funded a writing retreat for me. I, I ended up writing a ton of blog posts and completely changing the way that, that I wrote. So um, for me, that was great. But that didn't mean that I didn't feel lonely and bored. And, and I actually didn't realize I was bored. Uh, that was an interesting thing, too, because a lot of like, all of us on the crew were convinced that we were like not able to be bored. But truth is, we were all kind of adventure-seeking people, which uh, actually means that we're kind of always bored and just always 
looking for something interesting to do. And so I was feeling it by the end of it. I was just, there was a kind of numbness because of the everyday um, being the same, you know, same outfits and um, same conversations by me, unfortunately. Did you wear a uniform? Was it, I, I'm curious. Mm, okay. No. You just, just had the clothes that we brought with us. Did you have laundry in the unit? We did. We did. Whoa. I'm just saying, guys, yeah. this is New York City. Laundry in unit yeah. is a thing. What was the first thing you did when you got out? Yeah. Was there, did you like immediately do, beeline to do something? Yeah, I ate some crunchy vegetables. Ooh. Oh, that mm-hmm. sounds good. Carrots. Yeah, no, that's, it's interesting. Like what you, the creature comforts or things that you, you, they're not even creature comforts. Like I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't walk into my house and go, you know what I really want? Is a crunchy carrot, carrot. but yeah. after being devoid of it for so long, we just had rehydratable stuff that was kind of mushy, and it was the same cubes, um, the same <laughs> texture, the same flavor. I mean, you know, you could add spices and stuff, but like just the same cut of vegetable over and over and over again. You couldn't like, yeah, you couldn't do anything too exciting with that. So. What was the first thing you did? You describe so Republican sure. candidates with that exact same description. Is <laughs> <laughs> the same boring cubed vegetable, yeah. flavorless. Um, yeah, what was the first thing you did socially? Like, not the food. Mm. I'm wondering, like, what you missed about your interaction with humanity. If anything, maybe you didn't. No, I mean, the first thing socially was a press event. So if that counts, okay. that was kind of weird. Um, and then later that night, we went to a party um, by the millionaire who funded the Habitat that we, um, Hank Rogers, the owner of Tetris. Um, he's really, he's big in the space community in Hawaii. Tetris? Yeah. That's the only Wait, Russian really? video game. It's the worst video game. What? Oh, the best. Oh, Tetris? Those are fighting words. Sorry. No. We'll talk later. Um, yeah, so we went to a party. So I had beer and like said too much, basically. <laughs> Socially speaking. Oh, was there, was there alcohol on the um, no. voyage? Okay. No, not voyage, but kind of void yeah. uh, I'm curious now just uh, no because like compared to other video games Tetris <laughs> is the worst I mean like Super Mario is very exciting there's an Italian plumber he goes to a kingdom eats mushrooms crushes turtles but there's just Tetris so the Russians were like blocks <laughs> organized blocks <laughs> hello I like the blocks it's my bad Russian. When you do a good job, we take away the blocks. <laughs> <laughs> the saddest video game. <laughs> so Russian. How do you win this game? You do not win. It just goes on forever <laughs> till you lose or kill yourself. <laughs> You're not wrong at all. I just love that game. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, potential inner colony conflict. Like if we're going out into space for... Oh, thousands of years. Let's just start with 30 years. You know, like, hey, yeah. let's just go. Let's just, we can kind of imagine. Obviously, the light at the end of the tunnel, we can't see, but we know that we, uh, 30 years, I, I hope to live that long. Uh, when we set out at a group of people, do you, would you suggest having some sort of, you know, structural hierarchy? I mean, like you do in, in, a, in a, a small scale civilization. Yeah, so the first thing I thought when you showed me the trailer was that every single one of those conflicts and the drama that was laid out in the trailer could happen for any, any show. And what that made me think of is that our brains are really evolutionarily old and haven't updated you know, for thousands of years. And so they're designed to solve certain problems, which is to like live in small tribes, get along, cooperate, and then keep away other tribes through warfare and other means. And so you're going to have whatever technology you layer on, that no, no matter how modern it is, you're just dropping in these really evolutionarily ancient brains we have into these modern situations, and you're going to have a reconstruction of all the same problems we have. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I would not see that going away. There's no reason to think it would unless you thought through some way of solving that, you know, having some intergalactic institution that 
mediated conflicts or something. I agree. I mean, as, as an anthropologist, I mean, we've, I, I talked yeah. to a couple of anthropologists about that and just the fact that I don't know if we could scrub ourselves from our problems when it comes to, I mean, colonization has traditionally been a, a very white European uh, uh, you know, obviously, yeah. uh, that, yeah. and uh, we know how well that and went. And based on that trailer, uh, it still is. It is, and uh, you know, I don't see yeah. that, and 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 just and, and and how much ego is involved in in um, trying to find a new world, and how much uh, you know, there's going to be uh, only the elite can really do that, and that also presents a, a whole mess of uh, social justice problems that I think yeah. cannot be so, fixed. So this is one thing I wanted to say when you when you mentioned the person who's paying to go up by themselves. Um, so this is something you said that a unique set of people selected into the experience you had, which are like, you know, weird people, people who want like willing to take risks, do something a little crazy, get bored easily. If you make it on the basis that people get to opt in, you're going to have a very different mix of people than you would if you carefully thought through who you're going to select. And the moment it's privatized, then that's selection all on the basis of wealth. And are those the people you want to send into space? Are those the people who are best equipped to, you know carve out new frontiers in space or get along with others or find a, a way to a lot of space butlers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But so who's going to make our food? Oh, yeah. oh, oh, we have to... Oh. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I agree. I mean, when, you, when it's not a diverse group of people that come from multiple... You know, that that's... Diversity is what makes yeah. humans or any species great. And if yeah. you're lacking that and it's just, you know, those that can afford it, you're going to have... I think it's going to be problematic. Yeah. Uh, well, but everybody should be like bi or pansexual. So this way everybody could. There's, hey now. Less, there's more coupling options. Absolutely. <laughs> that sounds Just like more a, drama, though. It could, oh. be, it could be. No, no, it's not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is also cool. <laughs> uh, we're going to unfortunately have to wrap this up. Uh, I want to thank everyone who has been a part of this show. We've got Harrison Greenbaum, we've got Jay Van Bavel, we've got Kate Green, we've got Ronke. Ronke oh, my goodness. Ronke Olobisi. I can't believe I got your name wrong. I'm so sorry. Uh, I'm Natalia Reagan. We also have Jana Gersovich back there. And thanks for being here. Oh, my God. This was so much fun. We hope to have uh, more. And uh, be sure to keep coming back to Caveat. And tune in to Star Talk Radio. We, we love you guys. Woo!